Last week we started a new series of studies called The Immediate Jesus, and, uh, and we're, we're looking at the person and the work and the, the ministry of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we enjoyed last week's study, and we, we learned last week that Mark is very unique among the Gospels in the, in the way that it's written, that it's very action-oriented, and, and uh, over and over and over again, it says immediately Jesus did that, or immediately He did this. And that's why we're calling this the immediate Jesus. And tonight what we're going to do is, is we're going to look at various aspects of Jesus' public ministry, uh, through the through this lens of the Gospel of Mark. And in order to do that, what I want to do is we're going to dive in. I, I don't anticipate we're going to be too long tonight, and, and we may have time if you have any questions at the end of the, our study this evening. But, but I want to break down Jesus' public ministry into three different categories. And, and, and the first aspect of Jesus' ministry I want us to examine is, is Jesus' preaching ministry. Dr. Da- David Siemens once said that the sermon is the preacher up to date. And if, if that's true, then, then as we look at the messages and the sermons of, of the preaching ministry of Jesus, then we will see Jesus up to date. We'll see who Jesus is in terms of his preaching. And Now, when you talk about preaching, I, I'm using that term pretty broadly because uh, what we're talking about tonight, Jesus' preaching falls into three categories of preaching. That is, his, it's really his public art- articulation of the word And you might want to write these down. The first is question and answer. Over and over again, we're going to look at that. And the second form of of Jesus' public preaching ministry is is object lessons. So it would be things that happen or or events or circumstances. Or, you know, we're going to read one tonight where it was a tree. Or it might be a bush or a child. Or it might be a woman sweeping, you know, uh, cleaning out her, her, her house. And he's saying, oh, the kingdom of God is like a woman cleaning out her house, looking for a lost coin. And so he used object lessons like that, things that he, these different items or events that he used to teach things. And they were therefore object lessons. And then the third form of Jesus' public preaching ministry is, is just the sermon. And we'll look at that a little bit. Um, so it's question and answer, object lessons, and sermons. So let's look first at question and answer or this interaction that would happen. And, and there, there are two ways in which we see that take place. The first is Jesus asking other people questions. Um, and this is sort of a Platonic uh, approach to teaching. You might remember Plato and Aristotle. They taught asking questions and this was a similar type of model. And, and, and so the first then is Jesus asking other people questions and, and, and often a succession of rhetorical questions uh, after that first question that led to an obvious conclusion. And then the, the second way Jesus used question and answer in this, in this ministry was uh, where the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the Levites or whoever it might be, the people of the day, where they were asking Jesus questions. And then his answers would lead them to a conclusion of, of some type. So let, let's look at some of the ways in which he uses this pattern. This was, by the way, this question and answer was the most common form of communication that Jesus used. You'll see it over and over again all throughout all, the, all of the Gospels. He waited for questions to be asked of him, and then in answering, he gave answers that sometimes may not even be direct answers to the questions that were asked. Because sometimes they'd ask one question, 
And he'd answer that question by really answering a deeper issue that they weren't even really addressing. They weren't even thinking about that. And Jesus brought that to the forefront. Front, forefront. So let's look at some of these. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 20, 23. We're going to pick it up there. This is the story of when the disciples are, and Jesus are walking through the grain field. Let's read it together. Beginning in verse 23, Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and, and, excuse me, and as they made their way, the, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So, so there's the question. The Pharisees questioning Jesus. But then Jesus, as he often does, he responds to their question with a question. Uh, verse 25, And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he, when he was in need and it was and it was hungry, and those who were with him, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Now David, we know, was not a priest, so he very literally broke the law in doing so. And he goes on and said, and also gave it to those who were with him. So not only did David eat of this bread that was only supposed to be eaten by the priest, but then he distributed it among his soldiers who were with him. Verse 27, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I'd love to just preach on that one time because we, it's, it really ties in with a lot of what we've been talking about on Sundays uh, because it's, he's really making a point there that, that we were not created to serve the law, but the law was created to serve a purpose in our lives. Um, but then verse 28, this is the verse, so the, this is shocking almost. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That, that is, now just look at this for just a minute. What, what is he dealing with here? Well, one, he's dealing with legal issues concerning the Sabbath. Second, he's dealing with issues of food or eating, and, and that is a theme that's going to show up over and over again in the book of, of Mark. And the third thing is he's dealing with, and this is a big one. He's dealing with issues of who he is as a person. I mean, listen, listen to his, his final point. Sum, summarizing all that, that he said, he said, so, which means therefore, uh, the Son of Man is Lord even of the, heart, of the Sabbath. I mean, wow. Uh, remember to whom he is speaking and the context in which he is speaking. Jesus and his disciples, I mean, they are being observed by the Pharisees who, who, see, who see them breaking the law on the Sabbath. And he answers their question. Their question was, why are you doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? That is, what was not lawful was to harvest grain. They're, they're walking through a grain field and, and they're harvesting grain, both of which are illegal on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, at least. And the Pharisees said, why are, why are you doing this? Why are, they, why are they doing what is not lawful? And Jesus answers with, an, with really, it's kind of funny to me, it's, it's really, and he did this often with the Pharisees, he answered with a very irritated, irritating question. He says to them, haven't you ever read about David? Think about who he's talking to. It's the Pharisees. Well, of course they've read about David. Haven't you ever read about David, how he ate the bread of the presence when he was at the house of Abiathar, when he was fleeing from, from Saul, how he, how he also took of those 12 loaves and gave them to his soldiers? Well, 
as I said, of course they, they, had, they had read about, the, about that story. They were, they were like professional Bible readers. That's what they did. They, they knew these stories. So the question remains unspoken uh, in their minds. Well, what's your point, Jesus? What's your point? How, how, can, you, how can you apply that? Uh, David eating uh, the bread of the presence when he was fleeing from Saul and from his enemy. How can you connect David eating uh, the bread of the presence when he was fleeing from Saul and from his enemy with your eating the grain in this field on this Sabbath day while we watched? How in the world are those two connected? And Jesus says, uh, says uh, l- l- and it basically he says, let me just summarize this exchange of questions for you. And he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I've said this before, I am not surprised at all that, that Jesus was crucified. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised that he lasted three years. The, the way he approached these things, the miracle is, is that they didn't just stone him to death right there in the grain field. I'm sorry, I'm going to get this adjusted and something's going wrong with it. It's popping a little bit, but the miracle is that they didn't stone him to death right there. That's, that was the miracle. So look at what he's saying. He's saying, David was the anointed king of Israel. He, wasn't, he hadn't taken the throne yet, but he had been anointed the king of Israel. And, and therefore, he took authority to break the technical point of the law for the preservation of the kingdom. And, and for the ultimate fulfillment of God's will, the destiny of Israel, he, he knew he'd been called to be the king of Israel. And this is what he needed to do to fulfill God's will. And, 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 he, and Jesus said, and I am the son of man I and the Son of Man, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in essence, he says, I will not be bound by the technical rules of the Sabbath law. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, And that's an astonishing answer to a very simple question. Why do your disciples break the law? And he says, because I am the fulfillment of the law. So let's look at another one. Mark 3.22. This is Jesus cast out some demons and we'll see another question here. This is a, this is a different uh, scenario uh, in, in the same question and answer. And the scribes who came down from, this is Mark three twenty two through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, that, that's the prince of all the demons, Satan himself. And, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. That, that's the statement that they make. Jesus has just delivered a person from demonic possession and, and they make this statement. They basically say he's in league with the devil. He has a demon, therefore demons obey him. And, uh, and verse 23, and he called to them, he called them to him and said to them in parables. He, and here's the question. Now, the last story, they asked him a question. Now, Jesus, he's going to engage by asking a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, obviously, that's a rhetorical question. He would not do it. How, how could Satan both uh, uh, demon-possess people and deliver them from demons? Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. First of all, who is the strong man? Call it out. Satan, that's right. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. In other words, nobody can take away from satanic oppression that which is in satanic oppression unless he does what? Look, look at 
the last part of verse 27, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus is saying, if I were in league with the devil, I wouldn't be stealing that which belongs to the devil. I wouldn't be taking what already belongs to him. I have to first bind him, overcome him, and take out of his house that which he has possessed. Now, this is actually just obvious, uh, but very devastating reasoning. Now, now look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, that's an important word in verse 30, because for also means you can put the word because. Uh, and so, so Mark doesn't want to leave any confusion. He says, because they were saying, he, as Jesus, has an unclean spirit. So, so Jesus here, he takes advantage of a statement that they're making about his, his deliverance ministry. They say he is casting out demons through demonic power. Boy, I'm sorry. This is just getting pretty bad. So I hope you can just uh, try to ignore it a little bit. They say, he, Jesus, they say he's casting out demons through demonic power. Uh, to, and he uses that, it takes advantage of that, that, that moment to operate in the question and answer pattern of communication. Jesus asked them, if Satan cast out Satan, how can his kingdom stand? And there, there is no answer for that. Then as, his, as is his pattern, he, he gives a response to that. He says, he says, if however, I have spoiled Satan, if I have overcome him, then my deliverance ministry is valid and it is from God. That's his logic that he's using here. Now, now, now listen to his last statement because he, he said, he said, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemy, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, when he says that again, he, he makes, he has this habit of making these statements at the end of these inter, interchanges that are just in your face, you know, because when, when he says that, I wonder like who he's talking to, who, who is he talking to? He's looking at these Pharisees who have made this accusation and he says this right in their face. He's looking people right in the eye and, and he's, and he's saying some very, very prov provocative thing. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, we sing these kind of prissy little Sunday school, Sunday school songs like, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and this sort of thing. But, but listen, if you read the, about the public ministry of Jesus for a little while, you'll see that it says, often it'll say something like that, after he answered such and such a question, the people ask no, no more questions. Well, I bet. <laughs> I bet, I bet, they, I bet they, that's true. I bet there were people in the back of the crowd saying, hey, hey, ask him such and such. And the guy next to him saying, you ask him yourself. I, I heard what he did to that last guy. I'm not getting involved in this. And so anyway, they, they, uh, they make a simple statement. He's casting out demons because he's in league with the devil. And Jesus then, by simple logic and a concluding statement, reveals to the entire crowd that the Pharisees are the ones that are willing to commit this unforgivable sin. They're the ones that are operating in demonic power. That's his point there. And, and by the way, listen to what that is, because there, there's all kinds of uh, confusion of 
It's often misunderstood when people talk about the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Um, Listen, to say erroneous, misguided, and doubt-filled statements about the Holy Spirit, about Holy Spirit ministry, is not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is to deliberately profane or to libel the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that people will be intentionally turned away from Christ. That's what's happening here. that's, That's all it is. To intentionally libel the work of the Holy Spirit so that people will be turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and Jesus' statements at the end of these little question and answer periods, are just, they're just stunning. It just, that just gives you a sense of it. There, there's another in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, that deals with tradition and the uselessness of tradition, which if you know anything at all about Jewish community and Jewish culture, that's a shocking statement. Then in chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, is the question that the the Sadducees cooked up in order to catch Jesus in a trap. I want want to read that one. If you will, turn there for just the the last of these question and answer segments. Chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. I I think that's very interesting because this is a story where they, they come up with this resurrection scenario. And the, the Mark is making the point that it's obvious that they're not asking a question because they want to really know the answer. It's obvious because they don't even believe in the resurrection. And yet they're going to ask a question about the resurrection. And it says, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven uh, left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Okay, first of all, if I'm, if I'm boy number seven, I'd be like begging my dad, please don't make me bury her, marry her, you know, because you're like, you're like, man, all six of my brothers have died marrying this woman. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But, but here's the question. Here's the question and answer part. They say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, now, Sadducees don't even believe in resurrection. So they're only asking this question because their intention is to try to trip Jesus up, try to get him to say something that they can use against him. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Is, is it the last one? Is it, is it the one she loved the most? Is it the most loyal one? Is it the one with whom she had children? Is it the first one? Or, you know, it, how will this work out? And listen, this is so typical of legalistic reasoning. They will make up some wild, complicated, hypothetical scenario and then argue about it. You see it all the time, even in, dates, in debates on cultural items in our, in our culture today. People will say, well, what if this happens? What if, would you say it then? And, you know, so, and, and that's, what they, that's just a, a really a legalistic way of thinking. They, and they expect Jesus to... Deal with this whole thing. But look at verse 24 and, and, and look again at his question. Again, his question is just another slap in the face. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now listen, he's not talking to Roman pagans. 
He's talking to Sadducees and their Pharisees there. These are the religious leaders of his day. And he says, the reason you keep asking these stupid questions is because you don't know the Bible and you don't know anything about God. I mean, that, that is a, a stunning way to answer this question. Then look what he says, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that they become angels. It means that they are like the angels in that they are not given in marriage. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, I think they had probably read from the Torah. I think they had read from the book of Moses. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Phew. I, I bet they just said, you know, I believe I'll just leave him to his own devices. That's what I'm thinking. This is, that is just a devastating answer to a question. They, they, they cooked up this whole thing just to trap him, just to, just to try to trip him up. And they, they get all tangled up in legalism and Jesus says, you don't know anything about God and you don't know anything about the scriptures. You don't know anything about Moses. You, you've never read the law. You've never read the story of the burning, burning bush. And if you did read it, you didn't understand what it was about. You don't understand anything about God and you're dealing with dead law, not a living God with a living people. All right then. Now, what do we know about Jesus then from his question and answer style of public ministry of preaching, so to speak? Well, first, we know that Jesus was a devastating debater. Uh, of course, you know, we could say, well, yeah, he was God. He might have an answer or two. Uh, however, more than that, he just, he just had a brilliant ability to sort through that which was inconsequential and to cut to the quick, to cut to the real heart of the matter. Second, Jesus was open interaction with his foes that they, in, in their attempt to expose him, they then might be exposed. And third, <laughs> this is so true, if you don't want to know, don't ask. <laughs> that's, what, that's one thing you want to learn about Jesus because if you ask him, he's going to answer you and you might not like what he says. Uh, Jesus was certainly not a namby-pamby wimp. Jesus just told it like it was. He confronted the evil that was behind their questions. Their questions, as I said, were not mo motivated out of a genuine, sincere desire to know or to learn or to grow. Their questions were motivated out of a, out of a desire to cause trouble. And Jesus saw through both the question and the motive. All right, now. Let's look at the next one, and we won't take, we'll take very little time on this, uh, but let's look at Jesus' object lessons. And I'll, like I said, it will spend just a little bit of time. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35, Jesus deals with the object lesson of his own family to talk about the expansion of the kingdom. In, in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, he uses children as an object lesson. In, in chapter 11, 15 through 18, he uses the temple. But there's another uh, object lesson uh, in chapter 11, uh, verses 12 through 14. If you'll turn there, I want to read this one. This is the only one of these that we'll, we'll read tonight. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for, it's, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the, his disciples heard it. Now later on, we're going to read this part, but later on they return. And as they're walking by that fig, the, the next day the fig tree is withered away and dead. And their disciples are amazed by that. And so the fig tree, in that process, in that event, it becomes an object lesson that Jesus uses to teach the uselessness of, an, of the outward appearance of fruit with, when you have the inward reality of death. So that's, and that's which was a common message, by the way. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, the third way Jesus did preaching was the sermon. Now, if you look to look at chapter seven, verses fourteen through twenty-three, Jesus is preaching here and he's teaching on the human heart. And you, 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 the title for this message might be called "The Deceitful Above All Things." But let's read it together. Mark seven fourteen, and he called the people to him again, and he said to them, "So, so." He's just going to talk to him. So you see, there's no question, there's no answer, there's no object lesson here, just preaching, just teaching. He said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the, the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Then he puts that in parentheses there. Uh, verse 20, and, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What is he preaching on? Again, it's the same thing. He's preaching on the reality of inward evil rather than just looking at the outward law breaking. Now, now, now look at his preaching. You'll, you'll see this. You, you have question and answer, you have object lessons, you have sermons, but you'll find that the greatest theme of Jesus' public preaching is personal holiness rather than just outward observance of the law. For Jesus, it's always about the heart, not just simply the actions, because he understands you can do the right actions and have a wrong heart. But if you have a right heart with God, that will change your actions. So uh, Jesus just hated outward perception, which, which denied inward reality. Uh, you, you remember what he said to the Pharisees? One of the most uh, cutting statements. He said to them, you're, you're whitewashed tombs, whitewashed graves. You, you look great on the outside, but, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He hated the outward appearance of health with the inward reality of death. Well, there's another aspect of Jesus's public ministry that I want to want us to look at. We, we looked at preaching and the, the different methods that he used in the public communication there, but uh, preaching was the first aspect, but calling is the second thing. Jesus had a ministry of calling. He was constantly calling people throughout the gospel of Mark. And I'd like to show you just briefly one of these, if you will. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 2, early in the gospel account, 
verses 13 through 17. Mark 2, 13 through 17 says, He, that's Jesus, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw the Levi, or Matthew, Matthew Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting on the tax booth, and He said to him, Follow Me. And He rose and followed Him. And as he reclined at table in his house, as is in the house of Matthew, Levi, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in that statement, Jesus identifies the very character and nature of His calling ministry. He calls men to salvation. He calls men to a new life. He calls men to meaning. He calls men to apostleship. He calls men to new personal ministry. He calls men to be His disciples. And we, we have to get this idea this concept of Jesus' ministry in our minds because the character of Jesus' encounters with us will always take the nature of a calling. Will always take the nature of a calling. Nobody has ever had a dynamic personal encounter with Christ that wasn't in some way or another called to something. We may be called from being sinners to being Christians. We may be called from being Christian to being filled with the Holy Spirit. We may be called from being sanctified to being sent. We may be called from one field to another. We may be called from life unto martyrdom. We may be called to heaven. We may, call, we may, we may be called to what we have no idea what. But, but listen to this. Listen. Every time the Holy Spirit phone rings in your spirit, Jesus is calling you to something. He's calling you to something. about ready to chuck this thing. If we fail to understand this, this concept of calling, if we fail to understand this, we will fail to grasp the character and nature of our own relationship with Jesus. If I don't get this, then I'm not going to understand that as He deals with me, He's constantly calling me to something new. He's constantly calling me to greater holiness. He's constantly calling me to a new ministry, whatever it may be. But whatever He's doing, whatever He's at work at doing in my life, He's calling me to something. And, and here's the thing. If Jesus is constantly calling every person with whom He comes into contact to something, then what is our response to that call? I mean, what can, what, what can be, the, be the only appropriate response to every call of Christ? Obedience. Obedience. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let me... I love technology and I hate technology. <laughs> I 
All right, now maybe you'll be able to hear what I teach. The problem is, it's going to take me twice as long to say it because I can't use both hands now. So that's, you just have to deal with that. Obedience. If you want to fully diagnose in two words the calling ministry of Jesus, you can do it with, with the words that he said to Matthew Levi. Follow me. Follow me. I'll tell you something. I've learned this. I've learned this many times over the years. Jesus will call you, but he will not necessarily give you an explanation. Anybody relate with that? Can you say amen on that one? In fact, the truth is in my lifetime, I believe I've had a lot more calls on my life than I've had explanations. Uh, There are many, many times when my entire communication with Christ goes something like this. He says, Follow me. I say, all right, Lord, I will. I hear that. I want to go. Tell me what to do and how I should do it. Follow me. And I say, yes, Lord, that's good. I hear that. My heart is yours. I yield to you 100%. I'm ready to go. Lord, Lord, I sense that you want me to go in this certain direction over here. Will I succeed? Will I succeed in this? And I'm willing to follow. I just want to know if I'll succeed. And he says, follow me. And I say, Lord, Lord, the, 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 the thing is, this situation looks like it could fall on me. The situation appears to have every earmark of, a, of an abysmal failure, a disaster. And, and there's a very, very little tiny window for any kind of success. Are you telling me that you're calling me to fail or you're calling me to die in this situation? If you could just give me that one answer and then I cock an ear toward heaven and, and the great, wonderful explanation comes. Follow me. You know, I've learned that for a God with a limited, limited vocabulary, he can certainly get a point across. You know what I'm saying? The issue is about obedience, not understanding. Jesus' ministry, his ministry is about calling. And if you don't want to be called, then all I can say is just stay away from Jesus. Because he's going to call you. He's going to call you. The third aspect of Jesus' public ministry is is the category of miracles. Jesus' miracle ministry. And I... I've kind of divided this, you know, in my mind, I've divided it into healing, signs, and wonders. Now, you can divide it up any way you want to, or you can not divide it at all. For, but for our study, I've divided it up into healing, signs, and wonders. Nevertheless, they're all miracles. Chapter 8, verses 22 through 26 is the healing of the blind man. We're going to read that in just a moment, but that's very typical of Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, and then there's signs, which would be miracles like the transfiguration in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, um, at the feeding of the 5,000. Nobody gets healed there, but hungry people get bread. And I don't think they would have died from starvation or anything, but but they got fed. 5,000 people are fed in chapter 6, and in chapter 8, 4,000 more are fed. Actually, 5,000 men and 4,000 men in those situations are actually much greater crowds of people because they weren't counting the, the women and children. Uh, and then there are wonders. And that, those are just things that were just wonderful for the disciples to behold, but they didn't necessarily signify anything particularly. 
That would be like chapter 6, verses 20, 45 through 52, where Jesus is walking on the water. I guess it does signify that his power is over, over nature, but, but, but I, I don't know if it signified anything, but I, but I do know that it very nearly scared the liver out of them. <laughs> they were scared to death by that moment. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at a typical event of, in this part of Jesus' ministry of miracles by looking at the healing of the blind man. Look at chapter 8. Verses 23 through 26, the healing of the blind man. So let, let's get an insight into the character of Jesus' miracle ministry here. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on, on him, he asked him, Did you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. There's a whole different message there where you can teach, you can talk about the, the God of the second touch that you can go back to him. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. Verse 26, and he sent him to his village saying, do not even enter the village. Now, verse 23, we read that. Verse 23, it says, and he took him, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he, he asked them, do you see anything? Now that verse for us just kind of shoots right by us unless you've read the gospel of Matthew. Can, can anybody tell me why Jesus led this blind man out of the village? I mean, could, couldn't he heal him? Couldn't he heal him right where he was? Why, why did he take him out of the village of Bethsaida? Who, who can tell me? Anybody have an idea? Everybody's, you know, I promise you, it'll be all right. Anybody have any ideas? What? Okay, all right. Uh, say it again. Didn't want to accelerate his plan. All right. Uh, well, that, that's, a, that's a real possibility in this. Uh, what's that? He condemned the village. You're reading the notes. Why would Jesus take him out of this particular town? He healed people in Jericho. He healed people in downtown Jerusalem. He healed people everywhere. But why did he take this man out of this village? And it's really, in essence, it's un unbelief. But, but here's the reason. Matthew 11, verses 21 through 24, Jesus speaks a word of condemnation against this very town, Bethsaida. Bethsaida and and he, he says this, and it will explain to you what happened right here says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here's the thing. Jesus refused to do a healing miracle inside the city limits of a town which he had already condemned. But here's the beauty, the beautiful part of this. In spite of that, he would not do the miracle inside Bethsaida, but he had compassion for the individual who had repented, who came and needed help. Man, is, is that good news to anybody besides me? Yeah. 
I mean, the hammer may fall on the community, it may fall on the nation, it may fall on a tribe, it may fall on a, even a generation, but if there should be one who turns to him in repentance, Jesus will lead him out to healing and to restoration. Now, now what do we see in Jesus' healing ministry? Well, we see that he is compassionate because he had compassion on this man, and we see that his ministry was very personal. His ministry was genuine. It wasn't showy. There was no showmanship involved. His ministry was a ministry of personal involvement with the person who was sick. Jesus, Jesus used all kinds of object lessons to teach his, his sermons, to teach lessons to people. What he never used as, a, as an object lesson was sick people. Think about what that tells us about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus was not flamboyant about his healing ministry. And somebody one time in response to that idea, they said, well, <laughs> Jesus spit on this man's eyes. You don't call that flamboyant? Well, yeah, he spat on his eyes, but he, you know, but he didn't bottle his spit and sell it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I'm point, trying to say. This, this was a spontaneous gesture which made a serious point to this man. Jesus said, I am the fountain of your healing. What is it that you're to avoid with people who have certain sicknesses? What are some of the things you avoid? Yeah, bodily fluids. Because it carries the substance of a person who is diseased. Jesus says, I'm going to share with you the substance of who I am which is the source of all wholeness, who I am. I mean, that's amazing. Now, it didn't, doesn't mean that he had to spit on everybody, uh, the eyes of everybody who was blind. Uh, Jesus is not about patterns. Thank, thank goodness that he healed in so many different ways because if he had only done it this way, we would have church, you know, like there's the one where they, he made mud and put it on the eyes of the guy and told him to go wash. If, if he'd only done that one, that one way, then we would have churches of the, of the mud packers, you know. And now if we was this this way, we'd have church of the eye spitters, you know. That's what we would do because we would try to recreate a pattern. And, but he was not about patterns. He was not about methods. He was not about showmanship. He, he was just simply in that moment, in, in unguarded, spontaneous openness. He simply said, be healed. What you need is me. And the, the fount of all genuine healing is Jesus himself. And that's, that's true in church ministries. The fount of healing is Jesus himself. It, it, ought not, uh, it ought to have about it the character and nature of Jesus in that healing ministry and what's going on in that prayer time. It, it ought to be unpretentious. It ought, to, it, 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 it ought not be self-conscious. It not, ought not be self-aware. It, it ought not be self-centered. It, it ought to be just plain and simple and filled with faith, like a childlike faith. Because, you know, the simple, plain healing ministry of Jesus, it just appeals to me to no end. To have him just walk up and lay his hands on somebody and say, be healed. Be, you know, the blind, to a blind man to say, open your eyes. To walk up to a deaf person and say, hey, you can hear. To say to a lame man, hey, get up and walk. 
no show, no showmanship whatsoever, no big scenario, just a simple, plain, compassionate act of healing. I love that. He, he, he just one by one, individually, had compassion on people. And if you, if you want to hear a word that is repeated over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, it's compassion. Compassion. He had compassion on them, and he said to his disciples, feed them. He had compassion on the man, and he took him out of the village and healed him. He, he had compassion on the multitude. Over and over again, he had compassion. His entire ministry is about simple, unaffected, unpretentious, unshowy, plain compassion. Compassion. He just loved sick folk. And he made them well. He loved people. And he called them into dy dynamic encounters with the kingdom of God. You know, I, I say it's still true in my life after many years of walking with him. But the better I know Jesus, the more I love him. The, the more I get to, the more I study his life, the more I love him. Amen. Would you bow your head and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, your compassionate ministry. And Lord, even, even in speaking difficult things, it's really born out of a heart of compassion because you're, you're not willing that any should perish. And so if there's an issue, a difficult issue that you need to deal with in order for us to get things right, then out of that compassion, you will, you will shoot straight with us. And Lord, I thank you for that. There have been many times, God, that you have spoken to me in ways that cut me to the quick, but it was designed to bring healing to my life. There have been many times, God, that I have experienced that. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your calling ministry, that you are continually calling us upward. You're continually, continually calling us forward. You're continually working and saying, come on, I've got more. Follow me. Follow me. And I thank you, God, for that healing ministry, for the miraculous ministry that you have, that, that, God, we have all experienced in different ways and different times, whether it was healing, whether it was signs, whether it was wonders, whether it was provision, whatever it is, God, there, we've all experienced it so many times, and we just say thank you, Lord. And I pray, God, that as we move forward in this study and we look at your life and your ministry in the book of Mark, I pray, Lord, that we would be continually encouraged and Lord, that we would remember that even in this, you're, you're placing a calling before us and you're saying, here's what I did. Here's my life. This is my word. And you're calling us to something new. So Lord, help us to hear that call clearly and to respond with the only appropriate answer. And that is to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.